Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Jennifer Palmieri. I'm the former White House communications director and the co-host of the Showtime documentary series, The Circus. Um, and I'm excited to be here moderating this program today. Um, I'm very pleased to be joined by my friend, Bed Rhodes, to discuss his new book, After the Fall, being American in the world we made. Um, as a White House staffer, Ben was a dep- the Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategic Communications and Speech Writing under President Barack Obama. He spent his career managing international conflict, particularly in the conversations that led to Obama reestablishing diplomatic relations with Cuba. Now, after, now his book, After the Fall, documents his three years of world travel, where he spoke with politicians, activists, and dissidents, confronting the same nationalism that has been tearing America apart. Our nation has faltered, and according to Ben, the acceptance of unrestricted capitalism after after the Cold War, post-9-11 nationalism, mania for technology and media, and modern racism that Americans refuse to confront have all contributed to our weakened nation. He wonders why nations have opted for populism and tyranny over democracy, and today he may provide us with an answer. We'll be discussing a lot in the next hour, and I want to ask your questions, too. If you're watching along with us, please put your questions in the text chat and the text chat on YouTube, and we will get to them about 45 minutes into the 40, 45 minutes into the program. Uh, thank you, Ben, for joining us. Thank you so much, Jen, for, for, for doing this. The best part about writing a book is you get to catch up with your friends at events like this. <laughs> I know it's sad. I haven't seen you. I haven't seen you in person in a long time. I, yeah. But it's, but this is, this is good. You know, this is better than not. I saw you in a studio in LA, I think for your podcast. Yes. I mean, that was a long time. That That was was a a really, that was a really long time ago. A lot has happened. A lot has happened. Um, So we were, we were chatting beforehand, but I just want to vouch that um, the book is really, um, it's not just good and well-written. I think it's really important for people to read because, um, you know, I, I think like a lot of people were the last four years, I was focused solely on America, very inward looking and, um, among the things that this book does, it sort of it forces you outside of America to look at these nationalist trends globally, um, how America has contributed, you know, how that happened in America, how America has contributed to it, what America needs to do now. And so I just think it's important for people to take time to consider that piece of this puzzle, because when we focus just on America, you get lost in it. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but I want to start about since Putin is coming, Putin and Biden will be meeting on Wednesday in Geneva. And he gave an interview to Keir Simmons at NBC. And so I just want to get your reaction to that. This like what you think the setup is going to be going into that interview, what President Biden should um, into that meeting, what President Biden should do in it. I mean, I think, you know, I, I had to in the process of writing this book because I look at kind of how this nationalism and authoritarianism has taken root in different places. And Russia is obviously one of those places. And in doing that, I had to kind of inhabit the entire Putin story back to the 90s. Yeah. And when you do that, and I did it kind of through the perspective of, you know, Russians who've been on the other end of Putinism, you know, Alexei Navalny, who's obviously in prison now, a young woman named Jana Nemsova, whose father was assassinated in the shadow of the Kremlin. He had been a Putin oppositionist. But then also looking at my own experience and, I think we have to recognize where Biden is now, you know, Putin is kind of in late stage corrupt autocrat um, in the sense (laughs) that he's just gotten steadily more aggressive, you know, so 
He comes to power at the very end of the 1990s, and it's a kind of a reaction against the, the trauma of losing the Soviet Union, the kind of complete chaos of the privatization of the entire Soviet Union, basically, to a handful of pretty corrupt oligarchs in the 90s, anger about that, a sense that the place just wasn't being run uh, efficiently after having this intense state control. And there's these phases to Putin. And phase one is him kind of putting his arms around this system, consolidating control, pursuing an, an autocratic playbook of, of you know, seizing power, essentially, piece by piece in ways that I think we've seen replicated in other places. Um, he's in also, what time frame was that? So this is his first time as president. It's kind of like 2000 right. to 2008. Right. And, and by the end of that, you know, there's been high oil prices. So like standards of living are up in Russia. He's feeling pretty good. He's beginning to push back against the United States. He invades his neighbor, Georgia. Um, right. You know, that happens in 2008. Um, and then he kind of takes a step back and Dmitry Medvedev becomes a front man. Right. And by the time Putin returns, there's not, the, there's not the high oil revenues. Things are a little tougher post-financial crisis in terms of being able to rely on just juicing uh, the economy. Um, and there's this kind of real turn towards a more virulent nationalism from Putin because he needed some legitimacy. Um, and it used to be he could spread the money around. Well, then it became, I'm going to turn to things like an invasion of Ukraine. I'm going to turn to much more aggressive foreign policy. I'm going to try to go on offense and really destabilize America and the West. And that's been what Putin's been doing ever since he returned to, to power. And by the way, I'm just going to discard any semblance of democratic norms here. And I'm right. just extending my term basically forever. Um, and at the same time, we also have to remember he's like one of the richest people in the world. He's stealing from the Russian people furiously, him in his circle. And so the, the reason I say that all is set up is that like, he's not going to change. I mean, he's been, <laughs> no. you know, we got 20 years of this guy getting <laughs> yeah. worse, getting more aggressive. It's good that they're having a summit. I, you know, as you know, Jen, I, I think keep lines open. Yeah, Maybe totally. you can salvage some cooperation on, you know, you want to have discussions about nuclear weapons, right? About uh, about the, the, the Iran nuclear deal, about trying to put some, you know, guardrails around all this cyber uh, activity that's taking place. But in terms of like what to expect, you're going to get Vladimir Putin being essentially a troll and being someone who wants to divide Americans against each other, wants to divide America against our allies, is going to continue to, you know, repress his opposition at home. That's not going to change. And I think Biden has to have that. And I think he does th that awareness of like there's a limit here to what can be accomplished beyond just keeping the, the communication lines open. But it's important that he confront. You think that it's important that Biden sees him, that Biden confront him. I mean, they seem to be going into this like when it, when Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, did his setup briefing for this in the White House last week. I mean, he was for Jake in particular, you know, relatively pugilistic about this. Like we're, do you know, some people said you shouldn't you shouldn't reward Putin by meeting with him now. And Jake's like, this is not a reward. You know, we're we're going to, we, you know, he didn't use the word confront, but it seems that they feel the need to show that the United States isn't going to be bullied by him. Yeah. I, and I think that matters in the sense that, um, look, you know, ch China and, and Russia um, are not shy about, you know, like yeah. commenting on, reacting to, acting on their opposition to American democracy. Um, and we, when we saw that in China, with the China, mean, the meeting with China that happened in Alaska. Yeah. Secretary I Blinken was, and Jake. Yeah. 
That was great. I mean, I think it's time to just kind of go in here and be like, guys, like, here's what we believe. And here's what we believe about what you're doing. I think in terms of like, what can be done, some people say what can possibly be done to put more pressure on Vladimir Putin, we already have all these sanctions. That's true. Part of what can be done is just being more open about, hey, I'd like to see them look at publicizing how corrupt this guy is. I mean, right. that's what Navalny did. I mean, the reason Navalny was such a threat to Putin, that's that's what he did. I mean, he he would he was basically an investigative journalist with an online platform and a national organization who just exposed corruption and built an enormous political following in doing it. The reason that he's in prison, in part, is that Vladimir Putin finds that threatening. Yeah. Well, I think the United States can probably figure out how corrupt Vladimir Putin in circle is and and be be open public about that. We can also do more, I think, Jen, to like crack down on the, the way in which they, you know, they use our own financial system to finance their corrupt rule. Like the where do you think the money's laundered? I mean, go to and I write in the book about like, you know, you look at these giant towers going up in New York City that nobody lives in. Well, you know, there's some Russian money washing through there, just like it's washing through London. So th there's things that we can do. I don't want to suggest that it's going to, you know, fundamentally change the course of Vladimir Putin's reign in the, the immediate term. But it matters in the long run because these are deep contests inside of all of our societies. Right. Russia, the, the the Navalny, the group of Russians that support Alexei Navalny. They want to know that there's solidarity with them uh, around the world. They want to know that people that they're not they're not going insane for for thinking that things can change, right? And part right. of what America has to get back to is this kind of patient, steady support for people struggling for their rights in in the most extreme and difficult circumstances. Patient, steady support, right? There's so much, so much on our side has to be focused, but like, but over, but take place over the the long term and like pushing against a lot. Of, it's it's not. It's not easy to be the anti-authoritarian. It's not efficient well, or easy. Yeah, and one thing I, you know, I thought about in, in, in kind of telling this Russia story in the book, and then obviously in the, the China story too. But like Putin, you know, in two thousand when he became president, nobody would have bet that twenty years later the United States would be a complete mess and Putin would be this strong man kind of bestriding the world stage. He he worked at it for twenty years. Yeah. Um, he he stayed relentlessly focused on a very particular vision of a kind of nationalist authoritarian system in Russia and a, an undermining and unraveling essentially of, of the international order globally. And we don't have that, you know, we, we the, the swings in our politics since 2000, if you think about right. it, I mean, we don't have that kind of sense of identity that like, there's just things that we're going to do because we're America. And one of those things is we're going to speak up against people like Vladimir Putin and on behalf of people, uh, you know, who are, who are fighting for democracy in a weird way, like, I mean, yes, of course we do it, but like we do it with the context of like swinging from a Bush to an Obama to a Trump to not taking that set of issues as seriously as we take issues here in the United States um, to, to a news cycle that demands that you solve problems, you know, tomorrow in the summit, right, you know, right. we just, in the Cold War, there was something, it's not that we had it perfect, but we had, we'd all agreed yes. that there was this kind of identity for what we, and, and I really kind of you know, looked inward in writing this book about what did I think being American meant? Right. And I realized that like it, until they fall the Berlin Wall, it, it, it meant that we were on the free side and that the other guys were the bad guys and that they were for communism. And, and that wasn't, I, I know that was oversimplistic, but it did put some guardrails up. In and terms it of kept what we, America yeah. focused on that as the enemy as opposed to each other. 
each other exactly and a trump is impossible in the cold war like they they just they would not yeah. have allowed you know like the uh, no political party would have entertained that you know and yes. i think we uh, well, a lot of what this book is about is the excesses of once you're on top you don't you know it's like in life jen like you don't curb your own behavior sometimes when you <laughs> when you're flying too close to the sun and, right. and we've kind of been that 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 you know that person who who forgets to check themselves and forgets that you need to stick with things. Well, and you said, you know, we thought that when the Berlin Wall came down, we thought that we were establishing a new world order. But, and, you know, I talked to Samantha Power about this um, for her book. And, you know, I thought when the Balkans happened, when that kind of um, sectarian fighting started um, amongst the the former republics of of Yugoslavia, I thought that was the end of something, right? But it was like, it was not that, that sort of, that kind of uh, nationalism, that, that kind of ethnic cleansing was going to happen in lots of places. And you just said before, I think you said, um, Putin said to unravel the world order, right? I, I thought we had established a new world order, but I think, you know, it felt like what was really happening was we were on that the world order we had been operating under took about 20 years to unravel. And now we're, um, I think still certainly in our country looking for that organizing principle that people can be united um, in with each other and supporting and not uh, pitted against each other. But yeah. The um, I want you to react to that, but I, I also want to set the stage with a, a, something you talk about early in the book that I think is, is important for the rest of the conversation, which is that you write about Obama's 2004 speech at the convention. So for those who don't remember, this is when he's United, he's running to be United States Senator. This was the red state, blue states, uh, you know, United States um, speech that really um, brought him to the nation's attention. And at this around the same time, Putin gave a speech. Um, and, um, you know, Obama sort of offered an explanation for why America had not done better by, particularly when it came to race, but how it was possible. And in Putin's speech, it's like, I think he told a story about why, why Russia had not, why Russia had faltered and specifically said, we demonstrated weakness and the weaker beaten. So, so talk about those two speeches and what you think it sets up and the stories of these two of our two countries and conflict between them. Well, I think that the, 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 they're they're connected to the the previous comment you made uh, in the sense that the Cold War ends and globalization happens, right? And and the countries I look at in this, other than America, are on the other side of the Iron Curtain, right? China, Russia, and Hungary. There's this flood of, of open markets and capitalism and democracy, and it's just going to wash over the world and kind of water every seed. And what I found in talking to people um, for this book was the extent to which not only was that disorienting to people because um, their kind of traditional identities are getting kind of washed over by this wave of globalization, but that particularly when things started to go bad in certain places, you know, the Iraq war, 9-11, then, uh, then, then eventually the financial crisis, you know, people started turning to more traditional forms of identity, nationalism, as a kind of organizing principle for their politics. Yeah. And I go back Here and I Here and elsewhere and everywhere, everywhere in the world. Everywhere, right? And so yeah. I go back and it was so interesting to me that Putin and Obama gave these two speeches within a few weeks of each other. And to me, it crystallizes the two paths in front of not just America, but the entire world. Because Obama's speech is basically... This is a story of human progress, and there are all these problems and all these challenges, but at the end of the day, 
human beings have more in common with one another than their differences. We can overcome racism. We can overcome, but not by pretending like it's not there, but we can do the work essentially of forging an inclusive, multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy where everybody can be American and we can solve our problems. And in miniature, that's an argument for what should happen in the world, that people of different nationalities and ethnicities and religions can do the work of trying to work, uh, work, this, work this out. Putin's speech was essentially, it was in the aftermath of a horrific terrorist attack in, in which uh, scores of children were killed uh, because the school was taken hostage. But the, the precipitating factor was also that the Russian security forces had just kind of stormed the school shooting and, and didn't seem to care that, that in the crossfire were a lot of kids. And what you know, was a horrific event, Putin stands up there and he barely addresses the terrorist attack. He gives a speech instead about basically everything that Russians can have to be angry about. We lost the Soviet Union. We lost the Cold War. We suffered this humiliation at the hands of the West. That then we suffered the humiliation of this kind of corrupt 90s when all these billionaires came in with their Western advisors and kind of took over the the, the, the resources of the Russian people, never mind that Putin himself did some of that, but he's speaking to very real grievances, you know? And his answer is basically the old answer, nationalism. We need to return to strong borders, strong national identity. We were weak and the weak were beaten. And I found it such a powerful line, even when I read it at the time, I got chills because we're very, think of like a leader standing up and telling I mean, you'd expect maybe Trump to say that, but American carnage is what it reminded me. Yeah, there's this kind of girl. He's speaking to something real that people felt. Yeah, and I think that it sets up. This is where we are in the sense that the norm throughout history is nationalism. (laughs) Like it's relatively new phenomenon (laughs) that you know you try to have democracy, you try to have a democracy that provides rights to people even if they are of minority backgrounds. That like, you know, history is basically a story of, of nationalists who end up fighting wars with each other, you know, um, or end up building empires. And and so what Putin is tapping into and Xi Jinping is tapping into in China and Viktor Orban, who I look at in Hungary, very much tapping into this kind of ethno-nationalism of I, I may not. And what's interesting to me about it, Jen, is like one of the Chinese who I talked to for the book who had been in Tiananmen Square and, and lived yeah. this from that perspective was like. The 20th century was about these isms, right? These ideologies, fascism, communism, capitalism, and democracy. 21st century thus far has been about identity. Putin doesn't stand for like, uh, um, like an economic vision, right? Like a, right. he's not, uh, you know, Putin and, and Erdogan and all, all these guys, even in a way Xi Jinping, who's nominally a communist, but like they stand for power and nationalism. And and, and and there's the competition is basically is that that speech that Obama gave is there still enough of a foothold to push back against that nationalist trend with that kind of more inclusive brand of politics that you know all the politicians that you and I have worked for represented and I think we in America thought and that particularly we Democrats well inevitably like the arc bends in that direction oh yes there's some setbacks. inevitably but part of what I'm trying to say in this book is like. It doesn't <laughs> like we, you know, it, 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 like yeah. it can if we do the work. But like World War One, World War Two, like the, the, usually like something really bad has to happen before there's then progress. Civil war here in this country, and I, I hope that um, we don't have to have further shocks to the system before we get back on a sustainable path. Right. Yeah. Like maybe maybe having gone through the Great Recession, the financial crisis, the 
uh, last four years of Trump, I feel like we have a second shot at democracy. We've been given like a yes. second chance, not yes. not that it's by any means um, uh, in a you know safe, but um, can that be the bad thing that happened that we can or- come back from now? COVID too. I mean, I, I had, um, yeah, COVID. I know one of the, yeah. one of the, someone, one of the people, one of the used to, yeah, yeah. Thought that that could be There's sort of a leveling. Yeah. Well, cause what she said, this Russian who I was talking to is fascinating woman, Maria Stepanova. And, and, and she's a journalist, a poet, a writer. She's just the, the kind of center of Russian, um, culture and thought in a lot of ways. And, She's like, look, I, the terrible feeling I've had in recent years and watching how aggressive Putin has gotten is it like this kind of stuff tends to lead to wars, right? Um, and and I had a similar trepidation even in the the, the Trump show here because mm-hmm. um, it's like on the one hand, it's like there was some silly thing to think about every day, some weird tweet. Right. or, But then I'm looking around the world and I'm like, well, Xi, Putin, Trump, Modi, like yeah. This does not end well. Like these people end up bumping into each other, you know. Um, and she was said she lived with and this aligning fear, then, themselves. Is that what you were worried about? They're aligning themselves until they end up inevitably in tension, right? Yes. Like like nationalists end up at war yeah. with other nationalists. Yeah, because you know? you're not fighting um, over an ideology. I mean, it's this, weird in that yeah. way because you're not. There's not really a difference. It's just what's in my personal interest versus yours. There's really not. It's about power and control, and um, there's a lot of corruption, obviously, behind it. Yeah. Um, and and so, you know, what she said is like, look, COVID could have been, could be the the event that at least forces everybody to stop and take a look at where this is all going. And I think in this country, that's what happened. It was like, and, and tragically, obviously, you don't want that to happen, and you don't want the terrible loss of life that we suffered. I think what it did, though, is highlight, like, these people do not know how to govern. These people, you know, the, the, the right. leaders who've done worse, in, the worst in dealing with COVID, are generally of this flavor. Donald Trump, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Modi in India, Putin in Russia. Uh, and so in this country, I mean, we could have a, a debate. We don't have to have it here. But I, Trump probably gets elected without reelected without covid um agreed you can um, stipulate and, for this com- purposes of the conversation yeah, that happened yeah which is no commentary on joe biden it's just like he was in a certain position that he yeah. you know and and so we did we got the second chance in part because the complete bankruptcy of what he was doing was kind of exposed to enough people through the course of that terrible year we all lived through um and i think in other parts of the world i i found even in in, in a place like hungary where you've had this kind of consolidation of authoritarian control, like there are signs that the pendulum may be swinging back because of just the frustration with the corruption and the mismanagement of things. And, and, and so the hope is one of the sources of hope. And I think there are many is that, you know, there's, there's going to be a, there was a blowback in some extent to globalization, which I write about, but there's potential for the blowback to the blowback here, you know? Right. Right. Particularly when it's, when it is incompetence at that kind of, at that, at that, at that scale and corruption at that scale, which pisses people off, you know, corruption does piss people off. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's like, it should be, what do you think it means? You know, you, um, one of the things you write about is how, when you, um, you know, joined after Obama won in 08 and you, you came into the white house and you had this sense of, um, sort of accepting those structural flaws that were in government. This has been my, certainly this is my experience too, right? I understood everything wasn't great, but you sort of hope to fix it from 
within, right? We're going to like work to make it a little bit better. The country's, you know, we sort of believe the country was largely on a good trajectory. It was important who was in charge. It was important who was setting the tone. And that, you know, by having the kind of leaders like Obama, you could continue to make progress. It'd be frustrating, but you would continue to do it. Um, And you say that you think it needs a more profound overhaul now. Um, what is it like, you know, and that you were so enraged that rage was a big motivating factor for you, sort of defining emotion for you for the last yeah, four years, yeah. which I, which I get, yeah. uh, wh- what do you think the more profound overhaul looks like? Well, you know, I, I it's funny cause uh, like Obama and you probably heard him use this phrase that I allude to in the book that the America, uh, the American government at least is like an ocean liner. Right? Yes. Um, yes. It takes a while to turn around and point in a new direction. And you know, we came in after the financial crisis and um, and obviously, like, you know, part of what you're just doing is treating this patient. Um, yeah. But I, I you know, I, I thought about really you identified at the outset kind of these four big structural areas of American life and society. Uh, and I'll try to tick through this as quickly as I can. But um, you have American capitalism, particularly the kind of post Reagan strain of unregulated American capitalism that has exploded inequality and opened the door to a lot of corruption because there's a lot of back doors and a lot of ways to hide money and a lot of ways to cheat. Apparently, as we've learned recently with people's tax and income taxes. Well, and and even as Obama reminded me in reading a draft of this book, um, you know, the financial schemes that led to the financial crisis were legal. You know, I mean, yeah. that, like the, yeah. the, the, the problem is that's so, why no one went to jail because it, it was exactly, legal. That's what he was saying to me. And, and so, <laughs> so you have this and, and what that did, though, is when the bottom fell out abroad. I mean, that was, you know, like in, in Hungary, like that's when you had this massive right wing populist backlash that leads to like it, it may seem counterintuitive. Why did the populism go to the right instead of the left after the financial crisis? It's because people were so angry at this entire system that th- this system is designed to screw us. And. And I'm going to turn to the person who at least reflects my grievances, because right. like they almost don't even think that the system can be fixed. Um, and, and so and they don't want you to think the system can be fixed. They don't right? want people you to like think Putin can, think, yeah. and Putin and Trump. They just want you to think that you have somebody who can game it for you. And that's what Navalny said to me is like, you know, what Putin says is not that I'm not corrupted. He says everybody is. So yes. you might as well have someone who's kind of like on your side. That's what's so um, corrosive. It's really hard to beat that back. It, it's hard to beat that back. And 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 so you have the structural you know, uh, post post Cold War capitalism, you've got the post 9-11 security state, which is this massive infrastructure where we spent over $6 trillion fighting terrorism. When think of what that money could have been put to. But also what I had to wrestle with is the extent to which the post 9-11 national security state not only kind of it diverted our priorities, it was, you know, a framework taken by autocrats. Like t- t- counterterrorism is what the Chinese used to justify putting a million Uyghurs in concentration camps, or Putin has used to change the laws in Russia, or Orban uses to to build like barbed wire fences around Hungary before Trump had the idea, and and and, and it created this kind of us versus them kind of xenophobia in this country, where the yes. anger that was once directed at terrorists somehow weirdly became directed at Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and immigrants in our southern border and Antifa. Yeah. It's the same cocktail, right? It's almost as if that was sort of that that like drift was destined to happen and the yeah. GWAT, the global war on terror, sort of gave yeah. people 
permission, not necessarily permission, but kind of the tools to do it, or that is how it manifest happened to manifest itself in, in America, but you think it was always destined to happen? I think so. When you unleash that degree, I thought about being the, like, what is the experience of having been a Fox News viewer throughout the Bush years, where you're yeah. being basically promised every single day military victories on par with like World War II. I mean, literally, that was, you know, we, the Bush is yeah. the conqueror and we we're going to bring freedom to Iraq and Afghanistan. And then the disorientation of that doesn't happen. Then Barack Obama's president. And when, when, when you don't get what you're promised in that kind of, you know, you always look to the enemy within. Well, what, someone must have screwed this up you know, uh, like someone must have stabbed us in the back. I mean, it, it's led to the darkest elements in, in history, right? But, but and then you take, te- so I've got capitalism, security, technology, where, the, you know, that's the simplest, these new platforms of social media, many from San Francisco, obviously, in that area, <laughs> like are meant to com- connect and empower people. They, they, they then become the perfect tools of disinformation surveillance before yeah. there's any regulatory structure around it. And then race, um, and, and, and I look back at the Obama years and I'm like, we were trying to address all this, right? Like our agenda was very much about trying to deal with inequities in society, provide people with access to healthcare, right? Trying to wind down those post 9-11 wars, like, uh, a tr- you know, trying to, to make technology tools for, for positive growth and creation and not division. But structurally, we had to make some choices like, we didn't let the patient of the American economy die after the financial crisis. We pumped blood into it, which saved the economy and created a lot of growth and opportunity, but also saved the inequities and saved yeah. some of the um, structural flaws. And on 9-11, we- The patient was still who it was before it got sick. It was still exactly. an economy that was built that was geared towards creating a lot of inequality. Exactly. And in the post 9-11 infrastructure, we never fully extricated ourselves from that being the kind of central project of what America was doing in the world, even as it, you know, became less and less where the world was headed. You know, we were trying to pivot to Asia and you you remember all that. Um, We were trying to do all the things that Biden's (laughs) trying to do now, focus more on climate, focus more on China. Yeah. Um, But we're constantly pulled back in part by our our political forces. Um, And then on technology, I think this thing was like, it, it wasn't until... Um, the 2016 election that that people really sobered up to like this these platforms are doing more bad than good um, that the trade off suddenly shifted and, and on race I think people took a lot of false comfort in the fact that the president was black yes. um, and so we got the racialized backlash to that um, without the kind of urgency to, of addressing racial disparities because you know, so again through no like I, and I I like to think I was you know self critical in some areas but I, I totally understand why. At every given juncture, we made choices we did. I think at this point now, though, it's so fundamental that if we don't address, and I'd shorthand it as the inequality in our economics, the, the, the post-9-11 national security obsession uh, with the, the war on terror, the, the, the need to put some guardrails around social media, and structural racism, like, we're not going to come out of this. Like the, the opportunity we have is to try to solve these problems and work through this. I, I think one of the challenges that Democrats and well-meaning Republicans have is that the other side of these debates doesn't want to solve those problems and actually wants to make them worse. Yeah, because the, the incentive structure on the other side, the partisan side, is entirely different. There is no common ground. Yeah, not like do they not just yeah. agree on anything? It's like the incentive. It's entirely like you can't. You can't. 
expect to have compromise with people who are incentivized to do something entirely different than what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, if your incentive, just take race. If your incentive is to take any incendiary event that happens, right? Yeah. Like there's a fire at a Black Lives Matter protest and your political incentives are to make that look like a, a, a violent riot that can then play in a loop on Newsmax so you can do TV hits and then introduce resolutions condemning Black Lives like you're not trying to solve the problem. Like you're you're trying to make it worse because it benefits you politically. Um, social media, all their criticism of of Twitter and Facebook, is not because they earnestly want to solve the problem of disinformation on online. It's because they want to intimidate those companies into not solving the problem of disinformation online. Because they, the American far right, takes maximum advantage of their capacity to spread disinformation online. And 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 part of what I wanted to show in the book is that. This is not unique to here. This is the exact same thing that a Vladimir Putin does in Russia or Viktor Orban does in Hungary. Like this is the playbook that they're all using. We need to understand that it's one playbook and, and we need our own playbook to push back. So the Biden administration seems, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to me because, you know, these are like most, a lot of people that we've worked with before. They're really, really experienced. And normally when you go into administration, you want to talk about almost all of your priorities in terms of the economy and how they will help people who are not doing as well, how they're going to help the economy. And a lot, and, and, and these, these guys, the Biden team does not steer away from putting things in terms of democracy. You know, the theme of this trip to Europe is democracy can deliver. They want to show, right, because Russia and China want us to believe that the best of the U.S. is is in our past. They want to show we can produce vaccines. We can give them to the world. We're going to, you know, we're going to lead yeah. the world in doing that. It was like really, they understood it was really important that they showed that the United States, after we suffered so horribly, could do something big still. They talk about that in terms of trying to pass an infrastructure bill that democracy can deliver, that the Congress can still work, that elections still matter, that whoever gets the most votes needs to be the person that came into um, into power. Do you think, you know, is that the right way to try to achieve what you're you know, what you're like this, you know, the stakes that you laid out, everything from inequality to dealing yeah. with race. Is it like going back to those fundamentals of democracy? So I think part of the, and look, the, this is the benefit, right, of, of, of you know, not being government. Totally. <laughs> you yeah. can say exactly what you think, right? <laughs> um, so I say this with like every ounce of sympathy possible to people who I've, you and I have sat in the exact same offices and had to make the same tough calls. And by the way, I had to reckon with like, there's just things you can't do, right? I mean, yes. I would have liked, for, you know, Obama would have liked to address much more structural inequality. He had no control of Congress after two years, right? So with all that said at the beginning, I think it's part of the issue, um, but there's something much deeper that needs to happen. So um, their basic argument is that we're going to perform so well that that will inevitably lead to um, a restoration of kind of a democratic equilibrium at home in a sense that, oh, yes, democracies can do stuff in the world. It's not just the Chinese with all their money they're spreading around. Right. They can do big things. Um, weirdly, and I say this with like a ton of, again, all the caveats about sympathy for, for what they're up against, that's the easy part. Like spending a trillion dollars on infrastructure is both very important and necessary and essential but is actually easier than dealing with why is our society kind of coming apart at the seams. I think that their theory is probably that like if you are improving people's lives and yes. showing the government can be responsive, 
then over time, some of the more difficult conversations become easier or some of the threat of a Trump returning is reduced. I mean, that, that has been true in the past, right? In, in the past, yeah. the economy doing a little bit better helps at the margins. And, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's enough or maybe it's not. I don't know. You know, I think it, so. Here's what I would say to take it to the next step. I, I just think that the there's a dis, there's two dangers with this. You know, the first danger, frankly, is that some of the stuff that you want to do that is the most consequential is the stuff that gets traded away. You know, I've been watching just these infrastructure negotiations. The corporate tax rate going up to me is not just like a pay for. Right. I mean, not to get, turn this into a wonky conversation. It's about the, the whole system is unfair. And like people's anger about the system being unfair is something they blame equally on Republicans and Democrats which is something that you and I might be incredibly frustrated by because, you know, but like if, if we're not showing that government is aware that people out there feel like they've been getting really screwed and, and some of those are like the Obama Trump voter type people, um, then, I, then I think that, you know, then you're missing an opportunity. That, that's kind of one smaller point. The bigger point is what's really at stake is like can a multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy work? Yes. And issues of technology and how we think about social media and how we think about the development of artificial intelligence and the data economy, issues around immigration, and are we a country that, that welcomes immigrants, you know, and, 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 and sometimes your political incentives are going to be like to be hard ass on immigration to get through that next election. But like the challenge is if, if you are constantly kind of taking that short term, like, let's not to deal with this issue because it's a little too difficult, like voting yeah. rights and immigration, when are you going to deal with it? And, 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 and meanwhile, the other party is dealing with them every day at the state legislature level, like in their media, like in their massive uh, information ecosystems. And so you got to join the battle here. I mean, I, 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 I wish this wasn't the case, but we're in a really existential struggle uh, about whether or not this country is going to be a multiracial, multiethnic democracy where people have equal opportunity and anybody can be American, no matter what they look like or what they believe. And, and. I, I just worry that sometimes the 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 the, the smart politics, right? Yeah. Which I was a part of. Again, I'm not sure, like sure. pure as the driven snow here. <laughs> we're not like, casting stones. <laughs> yeah, right. we're just saying that, like, I get because we, by the way, like I said, make this point in the book. We made the same trade-offs in our foreign policy, right? With China, it was always something yeah. like, well, you know, with Obama, like, we need to get them in the Paris Agreement, and we need to get them in the first term to help us deal with the global economy and. Clinton wanted to get open up those markets to lower prices and, and for Americans and and to engage with jobs. China, you know, like don't yeah. let them be, don't let this become another Cold War, don't let them be in a silo, right? That's like part of what was happening at the but democracy the 90s. was always not the priority, right? Like if I was China looking at us, not at home, we're like, not abroad. We, we put out our statements about Tibet, but we don't really do anything about them. We've gone to the mat on trade wars about like soybean purchases uh, uh, from China more than we have about their their repressive political system. All I'm saying is that just at home and abroad, democracy has to be a, the first issue, in my view. And just a democracy delivering isn't the same thing as democracy being the first issue. It's the health of the democracy itself that we have to fight for. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like we realized all of these problems. Did we, really, did we realize all of the problems too late? Or is it, you know, or, or have we gotten there in time to to get at the root of them, right? We were found on this great idea. We were equal. 
if you were white, a man and own land, right? And yeah, like, and like yeah. you're still living with still having not confronted that. The is is there a country that is dealing with it better than the US? And by it, I mean um, you know, particularly particularly race. I, I don't. I, I, it's like a real question. I don't. I, I. I think there's probably not a country as diverse as the United uh, States. No. I don't... No. No. Yeah. Okay. Nobody's so as diverse as we are. I mean, our race has been. These I are mean... the kinds of questions I ask my friend Ben Rhodes. So <laughs> ben I'll, I'm right, throw, right? We're the most I'll, diverse. So like that, yeah. you know. I mean, because we're kind of tough on America, but I don't know that it's happening better anywhere else. Well, well here's one thing I'm gonna. Say, I would say. Um, this was an interesting thought experiment, uh, yeah. which is you'll appreciate. Um, you know, five countries that have pretty common traditions because we all kind of come out of the British Empire. Um, the UK, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. Right. Um, generally, for just kind of the five eyes, these countries that have this close relationship and, and, and intelligence and other things. Three of those countries have uh, Rupert Murdoch me uh, media that kind of dominates. Wow. Two of them don't. The United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia have politics that are a complete, utter mess. Like, look at us. UK just had Brexit and has this kind of, you know, I would argue pretty buffoonish nationalist prime minister. Right. Australia's had like a revolving door of prime ministers, some of whom have been quite out there on the right. And then you have Canada and Justin Trudeau and New Zealand and Jacinda Ardern, where I'm not suggesting everything is perfect, but like, right. it, it's a lot better. You know? Interesting, yeah. Um, and so what part of what I'm getting at is that these are human, these are, these aren't, it's not gravity. I mean, right. like, like just, just, just that example points to the fact that like taking some responsibility for, you know, just the media um, and, and, and the media interaction of media and politics um, can lead to better outcomes. I think Canada and New Zealand uh, look quite reasonable and, and are at least actually trying to, to, and I'm not saying that Trudeau or, or, or Justin Ardern are perfect, but like they're at least trying to solve these problems and, yeah. and there's having societal dialogues and about talking them. about them, up, yeah, you know, yeah. up front, you know, this, well, that's a good, you know, one of the, this is good. You know, Cause as it turns out, leadership matters and who's in, and yeah. who's in charge matters. Um, one of the questions we have from the audience is, do you think the current U S Congress will be able to regulate social media enough to make it much more difficult for Russian trolls to divide us using these platforms? I think it's been incredibly challenging. I mean, trying to get legislation um, that that addresses this is going to be incredibly difficult, given the differing perspectives on on this. But that doesn't make me kind of give, as someone who's kind of looked at this a lot. Look, I take a pretty, you know, I, I look at this as a public health and safety issue at this point. Where sure was the last uh, year and a half. Well, yeah, with vaccines um, and and the idea that. Uh, <laughs> There's so many dimensions, but the, the ones I'll say quickly are like the idea that these platforms are impartial in just the flood of disinformation flowing to people. No, their algorithms uh, have a say, you know, and uh, uh, like Vladimir Putin has figured that out. He knows how to juice the algorithm, whether it's a Facebook feed or even a Google search engine, although I think Google's done better at this. Take Trump's blog. Like, well, all we've heard is how everybody wanted to know what, you know, the reason Trump did so well is because people wanted that content. Well, no, they didn't. Like, they didn't go to it when they had to, when they had to right. go find it. What the algorithm does is it knows that Trump's content gets engagement. So it's going to, it's going to, it's going to trigger the, 
the right and the left and create the engagement that creates clicks. I don't have to tell San Francisco audiences, but the point is that, you know, you would like there to be some change in how these algorithms are created and some change in the degree of responsibility that companies like particularly Facebook have in removing certain content. I know it's hard, but you know what? Like, so I don't care that it's hard. Yeah. I care that it's destroying American democracy and that like 40% of my fellow citizens don't seem to live in objective reality. That's a bigger problem than whether it's hard to regulate your algorithm. Yeah. And, and I think that even if Congress can't do this, if the U.S. government can agree with some other governments, um, and I think particularly Europe would be at the forefront of this, and just what are the principles? Like, at least what are we aiming to achieve? And then, by the way, give the companies a chance to self-regulate here. But I think there needs to be some guidance about what are the priorities, what are the responsibilities, what would we like to see happen in terms of improving this space? Um, anything is better than where we are now. Yeah, as 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 Kara Swisher says, if Mark Zuckerberg hadn't wanted uh, to be responsible for regulating truth, then he shouldn't have created a platform that required it. Like, yeah, these are yeah, pri- exactly. you know, you know, like we we forget. I think people forget that Facebook is is a private company. You know, it is it's it's not there are not constitutional rights to being heard on being heard on Facebook. They can they can stop whoever they want. Yeah, um, and I don't know that free speech had in mind automated Russian trolls speech. Right. <laughs> You know, like I, I you have to adapt. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, like that's not the same thing as someone like say, saying their opinion. You know, uh, in this country, it's weird that my stepdaughter wanted me to ask this question. Why didn't Why didn't the Russia do much to prop up Trump's blog? You know, it's <laughs> kind of funny, right? Like, why didn't they take the content from the blog and try to get more shares in, you know, in, in, in these platforms? Actually- it's funny. I mean, it's funny, but at the same time, I think, and again, I, I look, one of the things I want to communicate in this book is how incidental Trump is to all yeah. this. And that sounds strange, but like, I think the Russians are more, much more like, how can we get QAnon in front of more and more Americans? How can, mm-hmm. they're trying mm-hmm. to drive us. They've insane, moved beyond. Right? Yes. Yeah. Like they, they're, they're into like, how, you know, how can we create divisions within certain communities? Trump is going to be Trump and he's going to do what he, he's going to do. And the entire Republican Party, basically, with a very small number of exceptions, kind of deciding that this guy who we never hear from is still like the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. What more work do you have to do? The Republican Party does it for, for you, you know, yeah. if, you're, if you're Putin, right? Um, and, and what I think but that's almost scarier to realize that this isn't just an effort to, like, install, you know, Trump. It's, it's, it's an effort to kind of turn America into the worst version of ourselves. Right, because that, that um, is what, that's what the original goal was, right? That's what, you know, yeah. was found. The original goal was just make people of the Russian interference in 16, was just make Americans doubt democracy, be unsettled, be at war with each other, and, and, and kind of hit the and, jackpot with him actually winning. They did, and they did too, because another thing I kind of go into in the book, though, is like conspiracy theory is very important to this. Like the, yeah. the Russians... Conspiracy theory, like Navalny told me, like part of the strategy against him in terms of disinformation campaigns has been, you know, yeah, there's a whole argument that he's an enemy of the Russian state, but there was a whole argument online that he was actually a double agent, an FSB agent. You know, of course, the Russian government would have every incentive to make the leading oppositionist to Putin out to be a Putin agent. Right. And conspiracy theory makes people think that they figured something out um, and and just sends them down a rabbit hole where they no longer have agency because they're living in the conspiracy theory, you know? Yeah. And, and so I think the, 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 there's no, it's not a coincidence that like Russian efforts have focused on, I think, juicing conspiracy theories. And they got, they hit pay dirt with Trump because the guy has like the, the mind of 
someone who's done five minutes of research about a conspiracy theory online and thinks he knows all the answers, you know? Right, right. Um, another question from the audience. Do you think President Biden being in office will change the trajectory of nationalism and authoritarianism globally? And let me add to that, what do you see when you look at elections happening abroad? Um, you know, Macron run in um, in France. Um, you have yeah. Johnson in the UK. Merkel hang, hung on for a long time in Germany. Yeah. But like, what do you see as a, you know, we, we we won here. Do you think it, what do you think portends? I think it's, so I, I look, I think obviously Joe Biden's election is, was great for, um, for the, it, it, it was like the, the second chance in a way. Yeah. And I, I, the way I describe this, I kind of, one of the hopeful notes I end on, and I actually, I wasn't just trying to talk myself into it. <laughs> Is, you know, the title <laughs> of the book good. is. After I'm glad the... to know. Yeah, well, and the title of the book is after the fall, and in a way, like we are fallen in the eyes of the world in the sense that, like, we're just like everybody else. Like, it can happen yeah. here. Like, we can have the corrupt autocrat with the son-in-law down the hall and the mob storming the parliament. Like, guess what, people? That happens a lot in other places. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, what's exceptional about us is the story we tell um, about ourselves, and that's still something that is exceptional, but. But the opportunity is that having kind of become more recognizable, if we can fight through it, then I do think that ripples out around the world. Because it's one thing to sit up on a high mountaintop as a superpower and tell people to become democracies. It's another when they see you like fighting back the crowd on January 6th and pushing back against the Trump and getting him out of office. So we have this opportunity. Right. And I think you know, Joe Biden is a great uh, – Jen, I don't know what you – like uh, like as – as someone who'd been on a campaign and someone who's kind of watched some of this trajectory, when he described himself as a bridge, I thought that was such a brilliant, um, I don't know if that was something that they had a meeting about, and, but he- It's just it, it true, seemed, right? It's, it's just so true. It's so true. Like, when he, he can be the, he's not going to solve all these problems. No one person could. Um, you know, we, I, you know, a charismatic once in a generation town like Barack Obama couldn't solve all these problems. Right. But Joe Biden may be the right, bridge in the sense that he can calm a bunch of people down, not everybody. He can kind of speak to some people that we're, we're, we were about to lose them forever and bring enough of them back to survive a couple of election cycles. And he can try to kind of begin to fortify like democratic backbone. And, and hopefully at the same time that there's this kind of regeneration from below uh, at the grassroots, because essentially what needs to happen is I think we all need to care about these things. Like everybody in America has to become like Stacey Abrams in a way like yeah. this. We can't just like leave this to the federal government or wait for Joe Manchin to change his mind. It's like, if you don't like that, then get out and do something and organize something where you are or run for office where you are, or like get involved in something where you are or change the culture. Like black lives matter. People may say like, well, look, the polls are down for that. No, but they're changing the culture and the cultural change leads to political change. Right. So I think, People have agency. Um, and uh, in terms of globally, I, you know, I think there's like, it's very unsettled, um, but it does feel like there's more momentum in the democratic world um, yeah. it, towards like, a, like a, a, the pendulum swinging back. Um, I would watch, if you want to watch kind of for indicators, because um, you, you even saw it, by the way, in Israel, where a to truly bizarre yeah. government emerged. But the unifying factor was like, this guy is kind of becoming a little too autocratic and yeah. corrupt. And we just like, need to get him out of here. You describe um, Putin as a late stage corrupt. 
Exactly. It feels like the last of something. But, you know, Orban has an election next year in Hungary. He's been at the vanguard of this trend. If he can be beaten, that would be huge. Brazil, where there's like a, a been a really Trumpian nationalist, he's going to be running for re-election next year. There's some big elections coming up. And what I find out there is the most hopeful trend is younger people actually running for office, starting political parties, most often young women. Um, and so there have been a few different um, women in their late 30s, early 40s, literally becoming prime ministers in Europe. Right. Um, that makes you hopeful. You know? Yeah, and, that, and, and, and in the United States, there's folks. a lot of young people running for office yeah. at lower levels, which is really important, right? Don't just jump to yeah. Congress. It's the state legislators. It's the city councils. That's like, yeah. it's got to be at every level. And that's who Biden is a bridge to, you know. Yeah, I mean, you can people. be a bridge and I think it can be, you know, and I, I think it can be transformational, you know. Um, an older white president could stand in Tulsa and name the members of the United States Senate that had been in the Ku Klux Klan, you know, you know, an older white man can do that in a way that a black president can, you know, there's, and that's the thing is I got, I get this question, you know, a couple of times of like, well, isn't it easier for an older white man to, to raise some of these things? And, um, and I was like, well, yeah, but that's not like the long-term answer. That's why it's just a bridge. Because like, like, we, we shouldn't just say, oh, wait a second. Like it was too big of a racialized backlash to that black president. And, you know, running. Uh, right. Or, or and also, yeah. also with something that strikes close to my heart, there wasn't too much of a backlash against the woman. Woman. Yeah. yeah. Well, even <laughs> so bigger, we can't do you that. Argue, yeah. You could argue yeah. even bigger backlash. Right. And, and so like, that's like while we have to live in those realities if we're in politics, like doesn't mean you have to be accepting of them, you know, but yes. you, you want to get to the place where the identity of the, the, the gender or ethnicity or, you know, uh, whatever it is, identity of the person, mm-hmm. it, it shouldn't be the requirement um, uh, to, to clear some bar, but like, you know, we're not there yet and we have to recognize that. And that, that's a reason to do the work though, not to, to give up. All right. We have some more questions. Uh, do you think the outspokenness of Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, and the younger congressional delegate uh, Democrats in being more critical of Israel signals a generational change in democratic foreign policy? One million percent. And <laughs> people like me have been warning of this for like a, over a decade that like, when Bibi Netanyahu did the full embrace of the Republican Party, the full embrace of Donald Trump, moved this further and further to the right, gave up on a Palestinian state, um, what did you think was going to happen? I mean, young people care about justice and structural inequity, and they're not going to carve out this one issue um, because it's it's a very difficult one to address. And, and the other thing I'd say is I was struck when I traveled to other countries, Jen, like mm-hmm. AOC is a global figure. Wow. Like, they know her. They follow her. Like if you're like a young activist in That's Europe cool. or in Southeast Asia, like so they're connected to kind of a global movement on on this and other issues that are like justice issues to 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 people. They're and not it's a just, woman. I, I, that's never happened before. Yeah, it's a woman and of that's color. never happened. It's yeah. a woman of color. And so yeah, I think that that is going to create like a real debate in the party. Um, you know, Netanyahu being gone doesn't solve that, um, but at least creates an opportunity to have, like, the discussion with, with, with a different cast of Israeli characters, yeah. Um, what do you think the eventual outcome of Brexit will be, and how do you think of it in the context of the recent rise of nationalism? I think it's a case in point, and I, yeah. it kind of makes cameos in my book, but, like, 
to me, the, the, the slogan for Brexit was one of the most powerful political slogans um, of the 21st century was take back control. It was like simultaneously angry and I'm not hopeful, but like at least we're going to agency though, right? agency, yeah. exactly agency. Like, and it can be about immigration. It can be about Brussels bureaucrats can, can be about white supremacy too. You know, it, it can be about a lot of different things and it grows very, I think out of this momentum that nationalism has had uh, over the last decade. Um, I, I look, I still think it's, it's a negative. I, I just, like in part because the well there's a lot of reasons why i mean i think one just for the uk now they're gonna have problems the scots won out and nationalism for a for for a united kingdom that is made up of a number of different countries mm -hmm. nationalism is a hard thing to, to limit to like the particularly english nationalism that led to brexit so i think they're yeah. gonna have problems in negotiating their what is their relationship to europe they're gonna have problems what is the future for northern ireland and scotland and the democratic world just benefited, I think, from a stronger Europe that included the UK. It is what it is, and I get it. I hope that in the long run, though, the, the best outcome would be the closer that relationship is between the UK and, and the European Union, I think the better for all involved. Um, because be careful what you wish for. If it's basically like, well, we got back control, mm -hmm. but like we lost the United Kingdom, we lost our connection to Europe, and we're less influential in the world, I don't think that's... A prize, like so. Right. I think they need to figure out how to how to still plug into the same institutions that they they extricated themselves. I from. mean, the fact that it took them so long to even figure it out. Yeah. I mean, and, and two prime ministers. Uh, I mean, we're on our third, right? Trying to figure yeah. it out. So, yeah. um, it suggests that it is not easy to disentangle. Um, another question: Poda said he wants to. I like hearing that and knowing that the reference is to Joe Biden and not yeah, Donald Trump. Yeah, good. Yeah. First, cause the first year you're in office, I still feel the need to say President Biden to yes. just the president. Uh, so Poda said he wants to discuss, swap, discuss swapping prisoners with Putin, and Putin is interested. What prisoners might be impacted by this? It sounds like something out of an episode of The Americans. <laughs> Yeah, we, yeah, like, we kind of like jumped yeah. the shark of the Americans plot a few years ago. I, we but, did. We, we, yeah. Uh, Susan, yeah, we started, they stopped having to do the show because we were just living it. Um, I saw these reports. I mean, look. They're, they're oh, my God. That's such a, I just have to pause and say, like, that's such a White House spokesperson thing to say. I've yeah, seen sorry. the reports. <laughs> Like, I, I, yeah. Now well, I'm not I'm talk, going to comment on them. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll comment on them. I mean, what what are we talking about here? Like, so like, like, like Biden is interested in Russia no longer having itself be this kind of safe haven for, you know, ransomware attacks and cyber attacks. Um, so th there's a, the criminals who are carrying out those attacks. Then there are also these Americans who are imprisoned in Russia who didn't really do anything wrong. Um, a couple of Americans who've been you know, basically uh, wrong place, wrong time, wrapped up by the Russian authorities. And God only knows who Putin's talking about. I mean, there's probably some collection of arms dealers and, and the like. So I get a little wary when we start talking about prisoner swaps to the Russians because, no, we, we don't want them to swap prisoners. We want them to no longer allow every hacker in the world to just, you know, like, like try to cripple America's critical infrastructure. Right. Like, so I think we shouldn't be in the hole here. Like we were the ones. Yeah. We're not in the hole. I mean, I, and I, I say as someone who's negotiated a prisoner swap with Cuba, but actually did it as part of a much bigger transformation of relations. Right. Where the prisoner swap was like the entry point to being able to change the whole relationship. So look, I mean, if, 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 if this is a minimalist thing where Biden can get those couple of Americans out of prison without having to release some, 
super Russian criminal. Um, okay, you know that I, that'd be I'd like that for those American families, of course. I don't know that exchanging cyber criminals makes. I mean, the point is not to swap a couple of criminals. It's it's that you want them to change their behavior. And the last time Putin raised something like this, he requested that Trump give him. Mike McFaul, like a former ambassador who right. they said had committed crimes. Right? So I've never, and that's why, I, like Putin sometimes proposes things as a troll. Um, yeah. You know, maybe there's something real this time, but I and think- And to like real, take back the yeah. narrative of the meeting, right? Not, and set the narrative of the meeting. Yeah. So that, that that's why I did my, I've seen the reports, because like <laughs> I'm curious who Putin has in mind. And again, I, I think people should bear in mind what Biden wants is for them to change their behavior more than they want to, you know, turn over this one hacker, you know? Right. Uh, we have a lot of good questions. Um, while writing this book, was there any one thing people in other countries told you they wanted Americans to know about them or the world outside the U.S.? Oh, it's a really interesting question. Yeah. Um, about them. Um, about them, yeah. Yeah, so not about us. Um, you know, I think um, one of the most powerful things that somebody said to me um, was Hong Kong, um, you know, because I obviously went there as an American. I couldn't I carry my baggage. I'm an American, so I see this in part through the prism of the American-Chinese Communist Party competition conflict. Right. And and I found it incredibly hopeful. Like, here's, you know, we keep hearing how good this Chinese model is, that, and yet here's this whole city where people could opt in and they want to opt out. You know, they, they, they clearly didn't want to go be swallowed up by China. And I associate that with kind of freedom and democracy. And the story they basically told me is like, look, the encroachment in our lives of China has been multifaceted for a long time now, where it's like, first, it's like, you know, you're not supposed to say certain things about politics. Then it's like, you shouldn't post certain things on social media. If you want to get a job, you want to get in a good school. Then it's like, don't even go to certain websites because they're monitoring that too. Don't even put anything in email. And the totality of like, don't do this if you want to get ahead in society begins to eat away at your, your identity. And then they're changing the curriculum in schools. And, and so I went there, you know, you, you guys want democracy. And, and what I mainly heard from them is one of them said, I was like, what do you really want at the end of the day? Like, what, what do you want? And he's like, we want to be left alone to figure out who we are. <laughs> you know, like we were, the British ruled us, then the British and the Chinese made a deal where we give them back to the Chinese. We felt Chinese, but we're not really obviously like them in a lot of ways in terms of our system. And now we're kind of caught between the Americans and the Chinese. And I thought it was such a powerful expression of like, at its core, people just want to be left to figure out who they are without right. big, powerful systems coming in and made me see the Hong Kong protest movement in a slightly different way that it's about democracy, but it's also about identity. It's about like, hey, we feel like we're Hong Kongers. We don't feel like we're citizens of the Chinese Communist Party, nor do we feel like we want to be like the front lines of American pushback for democracy. Like, right. And I think that it was a good lesson for me of like, at the end of the day, like one way of thinking about freedom is just like that it's freedom is supposed to be your ability to just figure it out for yourself. You know? yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, so that was, uh, that, that stuck with me. Okay. So we have, um, we have our last, we're at our last question because we're out of time oh, yeah. and I'm going to pull like, it's going to be like, I'm a network, uh, white house correspondent where I have a three part question. Yes. Jeff Mason. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the last audience we have the quest from the, the last 
audience from <laughs> the last question from the audience uh, is what gave you the most hope during your journey in writing the book? Um, and then what I want to know, you know, is you, you had this really interesting passage about a woman, like an innkeeper in West Virginia, who was one of the famed Obama Trump voters uh, that you had, you know, you end up sort of stumbling upon a conversation about politics with her reluctantly. Um, you all managed to be civil and, you know, try and see past these political differences, but it's like, there's not so much of what divides us is not real. It's made up. Yeah. Um, she thought all of this crazy stuff about Benghazi that is not true. Um, that's what upset her. The things that upset her weren't true. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, and the, the, the final piece of this is that you have a great part in the book where you talk about President Obama's speech in Selma, 50, 50th anniversary of Selma. Um, and Bloody Sunday, and talking about putting the anecdote about Jackie Robinson stealing home, yeah, and how stealing home, you know, first first uh, black uh, baseball player uh, in the, in Major League Baseball, um, and that that sort of like underguard gumption, underdog gumption yeah. that it takes yeah. to steal home. Like, why is that an American thing? And you know, oh, yeah. what, what gave you? So you know, is that what gives you hope? What gives you hope during this? Yeah, I mean, I think, so the West Virginia voter was an interesting experience for me because I, like, you know, we, we ended up talking about Benghazi. Um, and the short version is, like, I had a conversation with her before she knew who I really was. And so she was kind of sharing, you know, like what I would say, you know, conspiracy theories about me. And, and I'm yeah. kind of warning her, hey, I'm a character. And then the next day when we see <laughs> each other. If you knew who I was, you I would said not that like to her, me. You know? yeah. and, and we had this lovely experience the next day where she kind of, she, she was apologetic. So then I was apologetic for some reason. And then we kind of embrace. And, and she's a lovely and a nice person. But Jen, like, I, I guess, like, the, the reason that anecdote is so powerful is because I'm reflecting on it. I'm like, well, but she believes until she met me, she thought I was someone totally different because there's this massive machinery meant to tell her that. And one of the things I, I write about that, like, you would understand is that I guess I've become, like, something of a, not an outlier because I'm, like, you know, like the rest of us, I'm on MSNBC and I'm doing podcasts. But, like, I guess I, I've, I don't know if I'm wrong about this, but, like, been seen to be increasingly kind of, I don't know if angry is the right word or... um. But, like, I just fundamentally, since this started happening to me, since I started being in the conspiracy theories, um, kind of in the second term, kind of around when you were communications director, those things are not related. Um, I found it so upsetting to be told kind of by a certain Washington mentality that I need to, I need to kind of get in a room with these people and uh, who, who don't live in reality. Like, right. I... I, I'm wrong about plenty. It's not that I think I'm so great. Like I'm wrong. I'm sure I've been wrong about a ton of stuff. Like I'm sure my batting average is the same as anybody who's in tough jobs and in politics. But like I want to like know that we are living in the same. But you're a good reality. person. You're like coming from a good well, place, and, and not like, even just that. And you're like, like living in reality. And like, I'm just assuming there's do just that. facts. Yeah, yeah. Like so. So to me, like that it was a core. Uh, it was both the hope and the problem. The hope is this is a nice woman and we do share things as Americans and we can sit down and have a good experience together. The challenge is through no fault of her own, I honestly believe like, uh, you know, she just lives in an information ecosystem that has her believing stuff that isn't true. 
and, and that to me is the core of the challenge in this country is like, can enough people live in reality? There are always going to be people who like want to believe weird stuff. I'd say for the hope, um, look around the world, I'm, I'm meeting these people who are in much more difficult circumstances than ours in Hong Kong and, and Russia who are like risking it all, putting it on the line. Like my hope is that I went around the world and found that like, they're more of us than them. Like that yes. if people don't give up and people don't succumb to apathy and cynicism and people mobilize and people understand, by the way, that movements don't succeed at first. Like, you know, like you fail and fail and fail and fail and then you break through and things change and things open up. Like that's how a Georgia is responsible basically for the fact that we have a, a chance yes. of democracy in this country. It's because people work there. If you do the work, you can get this done. And that kind of led, I ended this the book on this kind of, radical idea that Obama had. It wasn't that radical, but it, I realized it was more radical than I thought at the time where he's like giving this speech at the anniversary of Selma. And he's like, I want you to, to come up with the, the list of Americans who, who are not in the canon, but who are, who are emblematic of the underdog story. Right. And so me and Cody Keenan, like the other speechwriter, who is the lead speechwriter, uh, like got to sit down and have this fun experience of like, you know, Langston Hughes and Sojourner Truth and, 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 you know, even Emerson and Thoreau and the people who made up jazz and the women's rights movement and, and like anybody who could be assembled from the cast of American history, who was an outsider, a minority, a change maker. We just kind of name check these people with details about them. Um, and it kind of, to me, reclaimed this idea that like America was, is at its best when we think like the underdog. You know, we think like we're the people that have been counted out or we're the people that, you know, we we're not we're not at our best when we're like, you know, the, the global hegemon. We're at our best when we're like fighting through it. And yeah. Jackie Robinson, I, I was one of the ones I proposed, you know, in part because it was so identified with Obama of the person who goes first and therefore has to do everything, you know, twice as well in terms of his behavior. But then I thought like this idea, like is this most famous thing he did, stealing home base in the in the World Series. It may sound like a tangent, but I was like. What an American thing, because Love it. like that's like not against the rules, but you're not really, it's against the logic of the game. Right. And I was like, well, what's more American than some guy, the first black player getting the third and figuring out a way to, to, to beat, get one over on the system, you know? And that kind of spirit didn't come out of nowhere. That was informed by decades of kind of Negro League baseball and people have been kept out who just like were, were honing their skills waiting for that chance to be on third base and make that run home. And, and that to me is, that's the hopeful note I end on because it's like, I think that's what America is. Like, um, I think we are the country, all these underdogs yes. I'm talking to around the world, we have to be a part of that. We have to connect to that. And when we do that, like pretty amazing stuff tends to happen, whether it's culturally or, or politically. And I, I, I think that's, you know, that's the hope. Um, and I'm that's gonna, what America's supposed to be. I'm going to read just like the last part of that. Cause I thought it was just, it was just so good, man. Um, talks, existing stick structures and inexhaustible grievances will present their own barriers, but there remains the opportunity afforded by each cycle of history to carefully watch the windup of a picture slowed by complacency and a sense of supremacy to pause for a moment and feel the sum total of experience and brazen belief that propels the underdog's dash toward home. That's USA. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right? USA. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. It's so, yeah, that is, that's you know, what that's we're supposed to be about. That is, that is. And each of us matters in this moment. So yeah. 
um all right we are yeah we are way over time out oh, over. Yeah, sorry about that. but no no it was me i mean i just had i had lots i had lots of questions i had lots of questions i didn't get to someday i'll see you in person i can talk to you more about it but congratulations and thank you this is really great you've been listening to the commonwealth club of california hear thousands of our podcasts on apple podcasts google play and stitcher if you like what you've heard please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.